Star and Shadow Radio, keep it locked. Hello there and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. It's a programme that celebrates creative projects that never got finished or that stayed private and never made it out into the world. I'll just give you a quick reminder that if you have an unfinished or unpublished project you'd like to talk about, you can email me, M. Anderson, on unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. My guest this week is Gilly Kleiman, who is a choreographer, which to her means doing philosophy through dance. I'm really grateful to Gilly for coming on the programme in particular because the unfinished project she's here to talk about has a very personal basis. The project is called Grief Dances and it arose out of Gilly's experiences of dances during grief. Gilly also has some completely fascinating things to say about all the different things that dance can be or mean and about what a post-work future where we work less and do other things more might look like. She talks about the importance of doing things outside of paid work, including her new love of growing vegetables. Okay, are you good to just start recording then? Yeah, I am, I think. I hope nobody knocks on the door or anything. I was recording it for a different podcast. And this isn't a podcast, it's a radio show, but for someone's podcast, and obviously then was the moment when someone banged on the door. Of course. I mean, it might well happen to me as well, <laughs> if it does. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. My guest this week is Gilly Kleiman. She's an artist. The starting point of her work is an interest in dance and in choreography, but her art manifests itself in a variety of forms, which we'll be hearing about today. If you'd like to find out more about Gilly's work, you can visit her website, which is very simply www.gillyclyman.com. A very warm welcome to the programme, Gilly. Hi, Em. First off, reading a little bit about your work in preparation for this, it looks like you do loads of different things. So you do dance and choreography, you write in journals and magazines, you write a PhD, you speak publicly, you organise coffee mornings, you organise dance activity in church halls and so on. You've also got your own programme on the Star and Shadow Radio. Yeah. So can I take it from that that, you like to have lots of different things on the go rather than focusing on one thing at a time or does the mixture of projects just kind of happen accidentally? Yeah I wonder whether it's that I like lots of lots of different things or that that's just the nature of the work that I'm in. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about. I've just finished working in a role in a university full-time Okay. and I guess that's doing one thing but the role, you know, being a lecturer in a university is already millions of different things. Yeah. You know, each module that I worked on could be considered a, a sort of a different project. Very similar to kind of project-based life, although the temporalities are different. Like sometimes in my professional non-academic career, sometimes I'll be really focused on a project for like a week and that's the only thing that I'm doing because I have a residency somewhere and that's when I have access to resources like other people like performers or designers so then I'm only focused on that thing I don't think I've ever worked in such a way that I only have one thing happening I've just never worked like that I think it's also in the kind of work that I do it's just not realistic 
there's no way for me to do only one thing at a time, either financially or in terms of appetite for the things that I do from from other people. I think I've come to terms with the fact lately that like I am a relative specialist in some things. The idea of a PhD is that you're doing something really specialist, for instance. But I think I've come to terms with lately that in lots of ways I am a generalist and that some people need to be generalists within fields to make connections between different things. And that does mean that I am maybe less specialist in one particular thing. I quite like that. I've learned to become okay with that. So you mentioned that uh, working on your PhD, working as a lecturer, and then you also talked about non-academic work. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between those two things. A lot of people, I think, would see kind of a separation between the two. Is that something that you would recognise or is creative and academic work for you more indistinguishable? Mm, I think this question comes up a lot around the kind of academic work that I have done and do, which is practice-based. So for my PhD, for instance, which I finished about a year ago, no, longer, a year and a half ago, I did a couple of things. So I made a performance and I curated a festival and those in a way were kind of like the field work for my auto-ethnographic research which is kind of technical process where you are a participant and an observer in a field of your own making that's one way to describe okay um that process so I I documented and thought about the performance and the festival as the kind of theoretical work of my PhD Mm -hmm. and I submitted a big thesis as well and I didn't submit the festival so I didn't make that part of what was the PhD contribution to knowledge but I did put the performance in and I think um, that means that I know lots of other people who do practice as research in performance and dance And one of the sticking points that not everybody agrees with me on is that I have questions about why we want the kind of research that takes place in artistic spheres to be valorised in an academic sphere. Because we do do research as artists, but it's a different kind of research. And I do have questions about why we want that to be recognised in an academic sphere, which already has its own agendas histories, epistemological frameworks and foci. And I do see this massive drive for like, oh no, but we're doing real research in the arts. And I kind of think, yeah, we are. Why do we want those other people who do this other thing to care about that? Sure. And that sort of, I find that quite frustrating. And then I also see peers start PhDs in dance and performance and they kind of think, oh, well, this is just a way for me to do my art for three years and have a structure and maybe get some pay if you've got a, a bursary or a stipend mm. or a funded a funded place as I did and I actually think one of the things that becomes really tricky for people at the beginning is realizing that that's not what that is yeah a PhD is a PhD a publication in an academic sphere is a publication in an academic sphere an output according to the like the very well contested and you know contestable structures of academia is its own thing and has its own measures of success and I don't know why necessarily always why we want artworks to be 
assessed according to those merits or even like seen as important yeah in that sphere like it, I think art, the arts are important by themselves I think there is that tension with the practice-based ones in particular because like you say in a way it can be a good way of doing your art for three years if you get the funding but like you say on the other hand then it's you know you're, you're working within a structure which is not the same thing as just being free to do exactly what you want with it I guess I mean, I think the idea of artists being free is also like really, really contestable because okay. at least in at least in my um, experience, I don't have I don't know if anyone has the freedom to make the thing that they would really make if it was, for instance, as a hobby or as something that we would lived in a structure where we could have free time to yeah. to take part in cultural production. Because you know, I'm really aware that when I'm making something performance project I'm doing that in the context of a market and in order for me to get the resources I need to do that I need to make that palatable to people who will give me those resources uh, in lots and lots of different ways so I am very aware of who else is making what and the structures that people make things in and you know there's a kind of a standard of like a one-hour theatre performance for instance yeah and that fits into festivals and venues and people know how to market that so like the idea of like artistic liberty is, I mean, I don't think we're any more free there than we are in the academy and people are, you know, are equally frustrated about, you know, what is a real output that counts towards the ref or sure. um, what counts as a teaching innovation that then gets me that fellowship or they're all like limitations on things that want to be free. And I think for me, until we have a universal basic income, I think we, we just can't understand what free cultural production might be or like a genuine cultural democracy where people can make what they really would like to make um, without it being a kind of it starts to like enter a commodifiable at least para commodifiable set of labors that then you know you then you're just really stuck and I definitely experienced that stuckness. Was that something that you experienced doing your PhD then feeling stuck in that way? No, actually not. Like in a way, the opposite, because I felt like, okay, I understand what this is to a degree. I mean, everyone thinks they know what a PhD is until you actually start it. And then you realise, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I guess I, th- I kind, kind of thought, oh, I, I sort of know I've got three years, I need to produce these things. And I think in a way, I was quite at peace with the fact that like, these things would be at least in the context of the academy would be assessed in a particular way and I did I don't really feel that what I did in terms of framing the practice was particularly inventive Mm. and and I and I don't think it needs to be like I think there's still like a lot of discussion about what practice-based research is or practice-led research and actually that's like a 30-year argument now yeah like not there's plenty of other sort of methodological frameworks that are younger than a 30-year argument about practice of research in the arts. The other thing that I did during my PhD is that, yeah, I made this quite big show. And because of what I was trying to find out through my PhD, it was really important that that work existed in the real professional sphere. Because I I know that some, some artists who make work in the context of their PhDs it might be shown if it's a visual artwork it might be shown in the like university gallery or it might be a performance that only happens within like a formal academic context whereas mine was funded by arts council england and other funders it was created in relationship to and with support of 
professional arts venues and it was pre presented in professional theatres to regular audience members. Yeah. Because part of what I was trying to think about was how that work fit or how that work participated in a lineage of works that are like that. I wouldn't have been able to think through what that work was doing unless that was how it was being done. There's a scholar called Efrosini Protopapa, who's a practice-based researcher, and she said that one of the problems with like being an artist scholar is that you're 100% artist and 100% mm. scholar, which means actually you're just doing loads and loads and loads and loads of work. And that is true. Like you just, just end up doing, mm. you end up doing it all. It's not like this sort of thing of like, oh, well, I just do a bit less scholarship or I just do a little bit less doing art stuff because each, each one has to be satisfied to its fullness. Mm. And that just means you just do loads of stuff. <laughs> and actually that ties in quite interestingly with what you were saying a minute ago about doing work for private or in your, in your own time. Because I guess, yeah. presumably if you're working, if you're doing that much kind of 200% amount of work during a PhD presumably then that didn't leave much time for any kind of creative output that was different from the PhD what's what's sort of interesting is that my PhD was about non-professional performers in professional contexts. okay and um how you know I was arguing that this kind of practice which is very common in the British dance landscape is already activating something of a post-work future. So a future where we work less and we do other things more. Okay. But I'm like quite rubbish at <laughs> actually activating that for myself. Okay. Um, and, you know, I've done literally all of the reading in post-work, in stuff around UBI, around, you know, like automation, acceleration and stuff. Like all of, all of that material, I haven't read it all. I'm not completist mm. in any way. But like that was the like world that I was occupying. Mm. And I think it's only on the other side of my PhD where I've kind of gone, hang on a second. Why do we do this? Why do we want to do it? What is this thing of having a career? What does that mean? Does it matter? And I think like this time of being sort of in lockdown or in like these sort of sus the suspension of life um, has really made me on a personal level rethink what I want to do and why and it's helped me really sort of clarify without a you know without an end kind of and this is what I'm going mm. to do kind of manifesto type statement but it's helped me like rethink why I do the things that I want to do and also sort of reflect a bit on like so I graduated from my undergraduate in 2008 mm. from from a dance degree so I was totally trained to be entrepreneurial and that was possible in those times because it was the Labour government and there was actually quite a lot of money hanging around for artistic and particularly like art, uh, like socially engaged arts practice and things like that. I think like this idea of having a career and, and the most important thing being like a professional artist, I, I'm actually starting to like go, well, why would I do that? Why, why don't I do something else and actually enjoy doing choreography rather than feeling like, I'm constantly scrabbling to try and make something that feels relevant to a market that actually I don't want to care about. Yeah. Um, and what kind of values can emerge? And this is really something I thought about in my PhD. Like, so what I was really interested in is like, if non-professionals are doing dance performances, and this is different from like other forms of non-professional performance, like people's theatres or like Amdram mm -hmm. or karaoke, which is like my favourite kind of non-professional performance out in the wild. 
like what what's going on there what what's happening and what I really love sort of thinking about is how like the framework of a professional artwork so like this is a dance performance made by this professional choreographer who has this biography mm. and this is the venue it's going to be in and this is like a posh real venue or something we can critique all of like classist elitist bases of those things too but thinking about how like these people do this not because it's a job not because it transforms their subjectivity in terms of like their professional identity they do it because they want to and what the framing of an artwork does is point at it in the world and say this is important Mm. this is worth looking at you're allowed to look at these people and have feelings have Mm. observations have thoughts and they're doing this this is producing value in the world without it being anyone's job yeah without it being to do with like, there's no profit motive for these people. I think that there's something really magical about that. And I, not just magical, like radical, actually, not in a kind of sparkly way, but in a kind of like, wait a second, there is already somewhere in the world where we make a frame and point at someone's non-professional endeavors and say, that's important. That's creating something else. I really would like to find more spaces for myself Mm. to do that kind of thing. But I think in a way that can't be now in dance. That's no longer possible for me in dance because it, whatever I do in dance, even even if I go to like a, a swing dance class, I, I'm not a swing dancer, I don't really know anything about it, but somehow I know that will end up being something to do with my professional work. Okay. It'll become absorbed and eaten up. And that then that undoes that the radical potential of the non-professional cultural production. Yeah. Your PhD was... was on not so non-professional performance in mm. professional context can I ask what form the creative element of that took so you said that you developed a performance for it that you submitted yeah so there's um I made a show called recreation yeah and it was a performance for five performers each of whom had a different relationship to the idea of being a professional dancer okay in the actual sort of performance that was presented to a public the three core performers one one of them was a retired dancer one of them was her husband mm. who's not a dancer but has been sort of dance adjacent yeah. for a long time and uh, one was a dancer who was at the, at the time quite a new graduate and wasn't working as a dancer very much yeah so they were all from here for all like around the northeast and then at each venue there were two guest performers one was drawn from like the local in- community in one way or another we tried different things and one was always a member of staff from the venue seconded to the show. Okay. So the venue had to pay for that person to take part in the work. So a lot of like how the work was made was trying to think about these different kinds of relationships of professional and not. But in terms of the content of the performance, it's, it's an incredibly slow mm. performance. Like not very much happens, actually. There was a woman who came to the show in London who I like had met on like a completely non-professional thing and we'd sort of stayed in touch and she works as a lawyer trying to improve labor chains like Mm. supply chains for all kinds of like massive corporations so she's like this really interesting woman who like was kind of thinking about some of the same things in a really different way and she sort of stopped me at the end of the show I've never seen her since I can't even remember her name yeah Uh, and she said oh it was a bit like watching how life might be if we had UBI and at the time, like UBI, Universal Basic Income, it's not the con- it wasn't the conversation that we're having now where people are talking about it like every day. 
I remember six years ago learning about UBI and thinking, oh my God, why don't we have this? This is a brilliant idea. And trying to talk to people about it and people were just like, could not think about that. I remember reading and realizing, oh, personal resources and work don't have to be tied together. And actually they're not tied together for loads and loads of people, the wealthy. It's only those of us who are workers, whose income comes through work, that like this tie is so bonded that we can't see any space inside of that. And it was really interesting that this woman said that at that time, because I thought, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's a very spacious performance aesthetically. And then there are sort of little mechanisms inside of it, either to like refresh the audience's gaze, like bring them back or to draw their attention to smallness or slowness. So it's very non-spectacular, apart from it's got a very beautiful set by the Glasgow-based artist Ima Tumothi. Okay. Or there are moments in the performance where the, the performers tell the audience that it's okay to drift off. Like, we don't need your attention. It's fine. We'll be here when you want to come back. There's a, at least an attempt at a kind of liberating gesture of like, that we don't need to be in that transaction here. Like you can sort of be wherever you are and we'll be here. And that's, we're all okay with that. And just thinking about the dancers that you were using then, how did the professional and the non-professional dancers feel about performing and maybe also about working together? Yeah, I mean, the way that, well, okay. So the, the first stage of making the performance was two weeks of just research. Uh, there was a week in Newcastle and a week in Nottingham because I've had a long relationship and was associate art, uh, artist for five years at a dance organization called Dance4 in Nottingham. Mm. I organized the week into sessions, so 10 sessions, a morning and an afternoon, and each, each session was three hours. And I invited different sorts of people and different numbers of people to come at each session. Mm -hmm. So some people, like there was a continuity that come a couple of times in the week. Some people would just come for one full day. In Nottingham, because I don't know as many people, we did like a recruitment process, which was also a really interesting and difficult thing to do because I sort of didn't think that people would mm. want to do it. And then loads of people did it. And so I had to sort of make up some like selection criteria. Okay. <laughs> but everyone got paid for those sessions. Not not loads. They got paid £40 for three hours. Yeah. Um, but it was something and it was pay it was paid work I think it's interesting to think about what that pays and I'm thinking about that in another project that I'm mm -hmm. doing now where this isn't pay so that you this can be your job this is a gesture towards the idea that we can be paid for doing things that are nothing to do with our job yeah okay like you you are being paid to take part in your leisure activity yeah your recreational activity and people have a different relationships to that. So that's definitely not, not what the professional performers would have thought. They would have been like, this is part of my work. And I've, I've seen on, you know, some people's websites that, you know, they've written on that they took part in my research as part of their like CV, yeah. part of their history of practice. So I did that. And then I thought, well, I can't keep working with so, so, so many different people because you just don't really get anywhere because you can't like keep, you can't build stuff. And then that puts me in a sort of, tricky relationship as always the teacher or something rather than as like a collaborator who is like responsible for instigating stuff and looking after stuff for the rest of the time at each venue we'd work pretty much just the four of us until the Wednesday lunchtime then the Wednesday was always an open if we work Monday to Friday the Wednesday afternoon was always a, an open workshop for anyone who wanted to to come yeah and then the Thursday and Friday 
whoever had been invited as the guest performers for that week, whether we were just in rehearsal or whether we we're doing a performance, we'd have those two days together. And between me and the three core performers, we developed a way of doing that. That meant that the material could be shared very quickly and very effectively. And it was an absolute joy. I mean, I loved working with yeah. those people. Like I loved, I love them and I love them. They're great. <laughs> Um, and I'm so grateful for like their tremendous endeavours. You mentioned there about kind of trying to overcome the idea that pay has to be for work. And you've also talked about the difficulty that you have personally of kind of not being able to do dance just for fun, right? So you talked about how it will somehow it'll seep into your work life. Yeah. So are you finding, are you having to find different activities that you can do for fun at the moment? Is that something that you actively try to do? Yeah, I mean, I think doing the radio show for Star yeah. on Radio, um, We Can't Promise Anything, which is an advice agony aunt show with my friend Marion, that is just for fun. And that doesn't mean all of it is fun. Like some of it's annoying. Sure. Going through emails, going back and forth with people like, oh, the Zoom doesn't work today. Oh, God, I haven't I haven't posted anything. Of it. Like we're, we're taking a bit of a break because actually it just became really annoying to ask people for problems. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like really unfun yeah. to do that like have you got any problems <laughs> tell me tell me something that's really hard and we might respond to it in two weeks time <laughs> so in a way it's not like I think like fun is also a category that can be questioned mm. and I remember trying to write about that in my PhD and one of my supervisors saying like mm, are you sure you want to say fun because that opens up a lot of stuff okay yeah. um, <laughs> and I, there was a reason I sort of wanted to talk about it then because I was talking about a particular performance someone else's performance so I wrote about other people's performances as well and it seemed really important for that performance to like think about what that funness is or not mm. funness and what the offer then is to people who don't do it as a job but like I think yeah like I, I really enjoyed doing the show with Marion in a kind of like it's so great to do something that is creative that I really 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 don't care if anyone likes it or not you know, I could say that about my dance performances, but so much is at stake mm. for me on a on a kind of identity level of like, oh, I want to be thought of as a good artist. Yeah. And if people don't think I'm a good artist, then, you know, that's really hard for me. And also just on a professional level, like if I make crap shows, then I might not be able to make any more shows. And actually making shows is how I get money. Sure. So then it becomes, I mean, not that, you know, people make crap shows and they still get money to make their crap shows. That, that happens all the time. Um, <laughs> and people make great shows and can't get any traction on a funding support level. It, those things are not necessarily tied together. And then I like, I've been gardening, uh, learning how to grow stuff like vegetables. I haven't bought any vegetables for a few weeks because I've been Sounds great. <laughs> and also like volunteering, which is not something I like. I would always be like, oh, I've got too much work. I've got too much work. But right now I'm trying to, I'm trying to work only four days a week, which doesn't always quite work out. And it's not going to this week and it didn't last week or the week before. But I'm really trying like on a Wednesday to not turn my computer on. And the reason that it's a Wednesday is because on a Wednesday I do food parcel deliveries with a local food bank, even though it's only a couple of hours it clearly sort of marks that day as like, no, I've got this other thing that is not work and it's not like leisure. It's another sort of category of human activity, which is about helping people, helping each other, which I don't know, I feel like 
otherwise can be really missing from my palette of activities in my life. I think what you said there about identity being being very much tied up with work, so like you might describe yourself as an artist or as a dancer. Yeah. And having that space to do something else outside of that identity that isn't associated with work is really healthy actually and and not something that we're necessarily encouraged to do in the education system that we have at the moment I would say oh absolutely absolutely not I remember having this weird friend once I've talked about this on somewhere else I can't remember now but I had this I had this odd friend who who I had as a teenager he was a friend a really good friend when I was teenagers and then I didn't see him for a few years and then I bumped into him somewhere and I said so what do you do and I meant are you in education or in work yeah what do you do for those things and he was like oh well I've got a couple of newts <laughs> and at the time I thought what what a divvy but now I'm like I want to be the person who like so I do loads of dating yeah. right and I'm, <laughs> I do loads of dating and I talk about it all the time and people are all constantly saying like what do you do and yeah. I'm like what do you mean and I start to get like unreasonably enraged because I know that's <laughs> like really a norm but I find it so annoying it's like well I've been trying to like turn my plants around every few days so that they grow evenly. <laughs> like that's a thing yeah. that I do. Or or like I've got a kombucha on the go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and those things are meaningful. Those things to tell would tell another person something about me mm. in, in a different way than I'm a choreographer, which also doesn't mean anything to anyone because then they're like, oh, is it like Paula Abdul? And I'm like, no. <laughs> uh <laughs> And make really and they're like what kind of dance do you make and nobody knows anything about dance anyway yeah and it was actually much easier when I was a full-time university lecturer because people think they know what that is yeah and it also like has quite a high status and they also know how much money that would make or roughly and then they feel comfortable whereas choreographer like it just doesn't mean anything does it mean like I do Missy Elliott videos <laughs> or does it mean like do dance classes for uh, little kids you know yeah I think what do you do like I would sympathize there because it's a, it's kind of a horrifying question if you do several different things for example so if what do you say what do you say well I say that I teach at, at the university right. yeah <laughs> again for the same reason in the sense that people kind of roughly know what teaching is <laughs> it's legible it's palatable <laughs> it's just easy it's easier than saying oh I do English yeah, research because yeah. then the, the obvious question is well how on earth do you do research in English yeah man and people think that researchers doing surveys and stuff yeah but that's a question for another that's a thing for another day I'm like no I, I basically do philosophy but about dance and that's a good answer yeah but then people don't know what philosophy is and they think it's about like God <laughs> you know like so it, it starts to get like really complicated I'm like no it's like sort of post-Marxist philosophy and then they, they have opinions about that and I just want to be able to, to avoid the question which is really unhelpful and of course I want to know what other people do but I, in a way, the other way around it is to say, like, how do you make money? Yeah. And to be more clear about that, particularly in a dating context, maybe, but also in other contexts. I want to know how you resource yourself. Yeah, you're right. That is what the question means, isn't it? Yeah. That is what the question means, ultimately. Like, people want to sort of know how much money you've got. Which brings us back, actually, to your, your point about universal basic income, which I was, I was going to ask you, what would you do if you were in charge you were kind of all powerful in charge of the arts for the day but you've mentioned universal basic income a couple of times so I'm guessing that might be your answer I would be like immediately I think there's all kinds of tinkering that we're doing around the arts so so much tinkering 
And actually, we're not getting to the crux of the matter, which is that hardly anyone gets to get any resources to do art stuff, actually, when you look at it. And there are companies like the Royal Opera House who pay people almost £800,000 a year to do their art, whilst other people, either if you're, in a, if you're in an arts profession, and we have to remember that the, the arts has encouraged people to enter the arts workforce. Mm-hmm. So it, we cannot carry on with that thing of like, oh, well, you just wanted to. It's like, no, I was told that there was some opportunity to do this. So then I participated in the bottom rung of the of the pyramid scheme that is higher education in the arts and I need to do (laughs) I need to find a way to do something I mean I think like any form of redistribution is good but I think on a broader scale like if I mean I talk about this like literally all the time but instead of like thinking that oh well people will only come to the theatre in Newcastle upon Tyne if there's a play about pigeon fanciers we should actually like equip people with more resource more personal resource so that they can have both the time. And I think one of the things that UBI does is give you time. Obviously, it looks like money, but what that does is give you time away from work and the right to refuse crap work or the ability to refuse crap work and resource to, to do their own thing, which might be coming to the theatre, but it might be do, doing something that like none of us who work in the professional arts yeah. care about. And that, that has to be okay. And that has to be completely okay. I like weird dance. Like that's, I like experimental dance performance. That is the thing I get off on. It's my favorite. I think dance is better than all of the other art forms. I don't even need to argue about that because it's so true for me. Choreography is the best one. And, but that doesn't mean that it has to be true for everyone else. And I'm a bit tired actually of having to persuade people to like things that they might not like and also like sort of do it in this weird way where I have to pretend that you can have the same like literacy and interest in something that I do after like 30 years of investment on the, on day one. We would never do that yeah. with football, right? I always think about football. I've been to two matches at St. James's Park and both times it was with people who were really, really into football. And like I could enjoy the atmosphere of the stadium and I could enjoy like thinking about who was there and all the songs and whatever and freezing cold or oh, that thing happens. This is the sort of timing. This is temporality. But there's so much that I could not enjoy about that experience. I hadn't invested in that thing for 30 years. I didn't know who the players were. I didn't know, oh, well, that person's doing something really innovative or that person broke the rules or there's this beef between this person and this person or this is very similar to a match that happened seven years ago. Yeah, They got such richness out of that one experience because they have this history of engagement. And I think something weird that happens is that we assume everyone should be able to participate equally in all art from day one. And instead, like I'd rather everyone had more space and time to engage with what they wanted to on their terms, which might result in more engagement in the thing that I'm interested in, or it might be a completely different thing that they don't ever need to tell me about. Yeah. I suppose people struggle with the latter one because it's kind of scary. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, the idea that people just might not be interested in what you're what you're interested in takes away the sense of validation, right, that you were talking about earlier, I suppose. Yeah, but what happens to, like, the idea of, like, cultness? Yeah. We're really comfortable with the idea of cultness in some 
artistic yeah. forms and not in others. I don't know enough about cultness. You know, there are people who study just that and it's fascinating. But like some people love that stuff that's just like yeah, true. Yeah. only six yeah. people like it. Quite weird because if you think about music, there are people who go to these weird, for me, noise gigs where like mm. four people go and they're clearly having like a really big experience and they can really talk about the distinction between that performer and that performer or uh, this performer and what they did four years ago at the same festival. Like they're really like, they're really, really into it and that's seen as cool and good whereas in some art forms like dance people go to a dance performance and they go oh well that was a shit dance performance that means i'll never go and see any other dance performances ever again okay. yeah <laughs> yeah it's like it's like imagining that you read a novel you didn't like the novel and then okay well that means i'm never going to read any more books <laughs> that's what happens to dance a lot well we've got back onto the subject of dance so um i'm going to edit this bit out because it's a terrible link um, <laughs> I like it. You should keep it. <laughs> keep it. Be non-professional. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you now to talk about um, the project, the unfinished project that you're here to talk about today, which is called Grief Dances. Yeah. Could you just give us a little description of what Grief Dances is? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with grief dances is that I'm really undecided about what it is. Okay. It actually came out of my PhD. So during the process that I, of doing my PhD, my mum died and she died of brain cancer. So we knew that she was going to die. So the grieving process begins from when you know that this person is going to die. Mm. Um, and then she died. And then within 10 months, two other members of my family died. Oh, sorry. That's, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was rough. Um, <laughs> um, nobody wants to be a like, regular at the creme. Eh? Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not fun. So grief was really around. And because I was trying to think, one of the chapters of my PhD was trying to think about lifefulness as opposed to work. And this comes out of a book by a writer called Kathy Weeks mm. um, called The Problem With Work. And one of, and that's what she's, that's a kind of what she gets to through a, through a writing that this, what, how can we avow life? Mm. Um, and in that, in my writing about life, life as opposed to work, I was very in touch with this texture of grief because that's what I was experiencing. And um, grief as a form of life or, you know, like a kind of pointing mm. to a relation um, which is outside of work or parallel to work or somehow meets work in different ways. And I found myself like sort of enjoying writing about grief. Mm. Um, and then I thought, and I was also like sort of enjoying writing in a way that I hadn't quite before. I'd, I've always liked writing, but I, I was finding myself, I was finding myself getting better at writing. I mean, when you write like 100,000 words, you get better at sure. writing. So it's like just, yeah, practice. Um, and you learn what you like and the kind of rhythms of writing and when things come out. And and I realized that like, well, it's, it's a lot of things. Like I was thinking about how visual artists, people who we normally call artists, they can make projects in lots of media and it's still mm -hmm. called their art. So like they might make an installation and a film and a socially engaged project and a painting all you know as part of a pro within within a few years maybe 
and that's all called their art and that's all fine and then I was thinking about choreography and how choreography over the past maybe 15 years or longer has been really been discussed as a kind of expanded field that comes into contact with other fields like architecture or therapy or um, lots I mean loads and loads of other things writing as well mm-hmm. and I was thinking well I obviously like writing and it has a relationship to choreography and sometimes it feels more or less like choreography and I can point to the bits of my writing that I've done in my life that I felt more like choreography and less like choreography okay like I sort of know when I'm in that mode or something like that and I was playing with that in my PhD they asked me about it in my viva I got away with it <laughs> um, <laughs> and they definitely can't take it off me right they definitely can't take it off me, yeah um <laughs> and I was thinking about like yeah choreographed book and I want sort of wanted to do a writing project and I started to think about like the different dances that happened before and after my mum's death dances that I did dances that other people did like dances in professional spheres so like you know making a show and the dancing that happens there but also like a new year's eve dance with um Mm. a lover that i had at the time and when we went on like a clandestine excursion and we were like dancing to jules holland but actually that was so tinged with grief in lots of ways because my mum was like really close to death and also hadn't told my parents that i was there and also i knew that this romance was going to be temporary so that you know like different forms of grief would come out and I was thinking, oh, this, I don't want to perform these. Like, I don't want to do these dances again. Like, that's, that's not what they are. But I would quite like to write them. Okay. I would quite like to find their form in text. And that feels like a good thing to come into contact with. And thinking about this relationship between language, grief, and dancing, and thinking, oh, these are sort of like interesting um elastics like it's sort of interesting like mm, it's sort of elastic but it's not it doesn't quite ping back like you can sort of mold they're malleable these relations are malleable between these three things and you can mold them in different directions so I started to like write different texts about each dance and sometimes I thought actually I don't want to make any more performances in theatres maybe I should do this now with the sort of pandemic time (laughs) Um, I want to I want to do a book and I want to publish it as a book and I want to see if I can get a publisher and maybe this is a way for me to enter another like creative sphere that I don't know anything about and I'm not trained for but I love it when people who don't know very much about dance come into dance yeah. and start to make stuff so why not and then I kept on going back and forth and thinking no well what would it what would it be for people to come into a theater and have that like jointness of being in theatre but you actually just sit down and read together in that space and how can that space be constituted in such such a way that um, you can sit and read together and that's comfortable and obviously thinking about like not everybody reads right so like what other options would there be that could be kind of readily what kind of audio track would there be but also then thinking well what kind of sounds do you read to could I ask someone to design an audio track that would support reading in that theatrical way? So like, how can the theatrical support this act of reading? And how can that reading, that kind of solitude of reading, be um, in relationship to this 
togetherness mm-hmm. of the theatre of like being an audience that kind of collective noun and how is that similar somehow to being in grief mm-hmm. where you're very solitary but very rarely would you like not also know someone else who's mm-hmm. grieving for the same thing somehow and thinking about the theatre as an apparatus of imagination so if you were sitting and reading and there was a th- an empty stage in front of you I don't know maybe this is because I make performances but when I see an empty stage things happen in my mind things appear there even very slightly like I sort of imagine things happening there so I'm still in a way undecided so I did a bit of work on it and I invited a writer to come and do some work with me on it just like some feedback and this is a person who writes plays so sort of neither neither nor and that was really helpful but I had a bit of money to work on it for a while and then the money ran out and I've just started to work on other things. I love the idea of reading in an audience because I think I mean maybe this is an introvert thing but I find reading with another person that's a really lovely activity even though you're not talking to each other. Yeah it's beautiful. I don't do it at all enough. And it's really interesting to me that you've kind of turned the emotional associations of dance with grief dancing on the head a little bit because I think Mm. a lot of people would associate dance with with being a joyful thing you know people dance at weddings Mm. did you surprise yourself by discovering kind of a link between grief and dancing or is it kind of just one more connection to do with emotion and dance um well I think dancing is and does many 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 things Mm. And in the social sphere, yeah, a lot of dancing is associated with fun and joy. But even like when I'm thinking about that now, even those are sometimes temporary holding grounds for actually things that are not very joyful. So like when you see people out dancing in a club, I'm not always convinced that they're always like really happy about it. And uh, dance, you know, in in so many different ways that like we don't need to sort of like produce a taxonomy now. In my experience of dancing, like in a sort of professional environment, dancing definitely isn't always fun. Dancing is also associated with Mm. hard work, physically hard work. There's lots of films and stuff where like dancing is really abusive, actually. And like people, it's quite punishing to dance in particular ways. Dancing is lots of things. Dancing can be a ritual act. Dancing can be, or things that we might call dancing, would not be called dancing by the people who do them. I think of the haka, for instance, which in my European gaze looks like a dance. It's a set of movements that people do that produce meaning. But I don't know if if the people who do haka would think of it Mm -hmm. as a dance. I don't know. I also think I also thought about the dances that I did when I was in this grief and like some you know, I thought about, there's a dance that I found myself doing like a couple of days before my mum died. Um, and I'd listened to this podcast, which was um, a podcaster talking to his mum who was dying. And someone had suggested it to me and I listened to it and there was some music at the end and I just felt like dancing. And somehow, it, I think it was the night before my mum died, so maybe like less than 36 hours before she died. And it was very obvious that she was going to die like very, very soon. And I remember just thinking, this is an important moment. And I recorded it on my iPad. So I've still got it. And it's a very weird thing to watch. Like, because, you know, you just see 
in my face like how difficult mm. everything was and then I think of another dance where like it was New Year's Eve of the year that my mum died and I knew it was going to be really significant and I went out with some friends and we went to like a terrible club and I sort of couldn't I knew I would find it really difficult I knew I'd find it really difficult and also there were like we were like maybe the oldest people in the club okay. and there was lots of like really really young people and I just felt like I was walking around trying to like stop 19 year old men touching my bum and um I just wanted to go I'm, th- I'm in my 30s man you're embarrassing all of us um so like it was quite a weird thing and then I found myself getting really upset and I had to sort of like mm-hmm. dance with my eyes closed to sort of get over it and it's like a really sort of strong physical memory for me that experience and then opening my eyes, trying out opening my eyes, still finding it too difficult, closing my eyes. And I felt protected because my friends were there and I wouldn't have done that mm. in another context. But but also things that are sort of almost dances, but not mm-hmm. quite dances um, or dances that other people did. Or like I, I sort of don't want to use dance or choreography too much as like a metaphor. I want it to be... I want it to be actual yeah. dances, you know, because you could talk about the choreography of, I don't know, the, the funeral director coming to get my mum's body. You, like that would be something that someone would write about. But that, that's not really a dance, you know, that's, that wasn't a dance intended to be a dance in, in any way. So I guess like also working on it and, it, you know, it's unfinished, yeah? Because that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really know what it's going to be, but um, I think I probably won't include those kinds of, things or maybe I will but a sprinkling so it's it's kind of the case then that the different dances that you were doing whilst grieving were maybe reflections of the different emotions that are at work sort of within the overriding category emotional category of grief as it were yeah 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 that's a good way of putting it I'd say I mean it sounds incredibly powerful stuff I'd I'd love to experience it in whatever form that um it, it would be in what do you think do you think it should be reading together in a theater I mean I definitely do that because that would just be such a like <laughs> I don't know such an unusual and interesting experience I think I did, I did apply to something to, to get some money to work on it I applied for a few things for it and one one I got really close and he was really like positive about it and it was would have been a really really big bit of money so it would have made it realizable mm because there's lots of things that I think I would do if it was in a theatre, if I decided to do that rather than just to try and do a book. That would be quite expensive. You know, I wouldn't want everyone to sit really close together. I'd want everyone to sort of have the feeling of being in an armchair on a bed. So that means, like, creating quite a big set within the auditorium rather than on the stage. So uh, the thing about performances is that they're incredibly expensive to make. It's It's not the same as you know if I was just writing a book of course that's a lot of time it's a lot a lot of time and I'd have to think about how to resource myself in that time but if you're making a performance and nobody has all of the expertise in all of the skills you need to make a performance you know I'd need to pay loads of people to do (laughs) stuff um yeah I don't know and then sometimes I think oh wouldn't it be fun just to like write a book and see what that process is like I mean, you could do both, right? I suppose, like, in an ideal world, you'd do a book and a kind of the reading theatrical performance that you're talking about as well. Yeah, that would that would be great. I mean, somehow, like, because I hadn't really thought about this work for ages, 
because I've been doing other stuff. It's like interesting to think about this in a kind of COVID yeah. <laughs> environment, actually, because maybe it is like a project because if I would want to make an auditorium into a, a different kind of space, then maybe there could only be 20 people watching it at once and maybe that is good. Yeah, actually, it's quite, quite suitable. <laughs> yeah, weirdly suitable. So you said that obviously it's an unfinished project and you said that it's it's kind of never reached the top of your pile of things to do, which is why it's unfinished. Yeah. Is is the reason for that primarily the practical ones that you've just been talking about, about, you know, funding and that kind of thing? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it, I was also think I've been thinking about it since we like connected and thinking, oh, I'm going to talk about this project yeah. soon. But also because I'm starting to see a horizon at the end of the freelance work that I've got and thinking, oh, I need to like do something, you know, like I need to, I need to start initiating something new, which is normally how I work. And like, oh, is grief dancers the thing to pick up now? And maybe it is. And I was like, it's really different to start a project like this two years after my mum died, yeah. as opposed to like now it's four and a half years since my mum died. My own proximity to that grief and to those dances is obviously altered yeah although I did think about it a bit earlier in lockdown because a friend died not of covid of mm-hmm. also of cancer oh, gosh, and um yeah I, I I I get a lot of bereavement done mm. um and I was so I sort of wrote a couple of of other tiny texts about dances I'd seen her do yeah and thinking oh yeah like there is there is still something very much here to explore about dancing and grief and also the kind of the act of reading Mm. how how reading works which is not something I know a lot about really but it's a different kind of organization of time choreography is so much about the organization of time that's why I struggle sometimes when I go to like art galleries because nobody's organizing my time you know I can spend 10 minutes with that or I can spend 30 seconds with that object or whereas in choreography that's that someone's decided that for you yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> like of course when you're reading you can like jump bits or move back but there is also there's a linear time to reading you read that bit and then you read that bit and then you turn the page and then you start again from the top if you don't finish a project how do you feel about that do you feel comfortable with that or does it irritate you or bother you or make you question again maybe your identity as an artist I've got a couple of unfinished projects from the past and they they won't be projects to be picked up Whereas with grief dancers, I know that, like, at least I have an intention to, like, proceed. How do I feel about it? I always feel a bit like rats. Oh, I could have, should have carried on with that. But on, on another level, I just think none of it's ever lost. Like, I, I sort of think about that in terms of the vegetables I'm growing. Like, my corn didn't work. And that was really disappointing because it looked really good. But then there was a really windy day and it, oh, and, like, it ruined it. And I'm like, okay, well, this is my first try. So, like, all of that corny material will now, like, rot down in the compost bin. And then I'll put that, and I'll try again next year. And let's, let's see see what happens. And maybe I don't want to do corn next year after all. Maybe I just want to do loads and loads and loads of peas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if any of it ever gets put in the bin, really. Like, I just think about all the different things that I wrote for my PhD as well. And none of it was wasted, you know, because I, I learned by the doing of it, even if nobody gets to see it. I'm totally with you on that one. I know when I was writing mine, I, there's just tons of material because I'm one of these people that has to actually write it down and, and get a relatively finished project in order to know what I'm going to say. Oh, totally. 
How does anyone know what they're going to say before they've written it? I don't understand. I don't know. Some people seem to manage it. <laughs> I don't understand how that works. How can you hold all of that in your head? I never know what I'm going to write until I've written it. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. No, definitely not. I was thinking about that this morning. <laughs> Something I've really been missing over lockdown is kind of the physical contact that dancing can offer. Like, I don't go out mm. with loads of friends all the time a lot, but when it does happen, I really enjoy it. Mm. And I was wondering if that's something that you experience as well, or is, or if you can kind of get enough of a buzz maybe from dancing by yourself. A lot of the work that I've done has some kind of tactility to it, and a lot of like the the facilitation I do with students and with other groups often involves loads of touch, and it's going to be a long time, like a really long time, before that kind of practice is easily available. Even if coronavirus like disappeared tomorrow and it was all fine, like I, I feel like it's a skill or like a sensibility that disappears incredibly quickly and people have become very uncomfortable with touch. I can feel that. Or like there's a kind of new new fizziness to touch. Yeah. Which is no longer like going back to dating. Oh my god, I talk about dating so much. Um <laughs> like, you know, if you go on a date now, like touching someone is no longer like, ooh is this something it's like oh my god this is terrifying this person has coronavirus and they're going to touch me so like the, the, yeah. the like it's become really high stakes I really like the thing that you said then about touch being fizzy mm. a little while ago I was <laughs> I petted a cat on the street and got really emotional oh, about man. it because, yeah, because it was like the first living thing I'd touched for ages I'm trying to get a dog I think actually what I'm trying to do right now in my life is like create barriers to work because I feel like people might, I'm 35 and a lot of people my age have families. So then they have, and by families, I mean children, which isn't all families. Then that becomes like a way for them to go, no, I can't do that work because I've got this other thing I need to do. And that's not to say that like, caring for children is like easy and fun and the same as leisure. It's not. But it's, it's another thing that stops you being subsumed into the wage relation. <laughs> and I think I'm like, if I have a dog, then I'll have to, you know, walk the dog twice a day. And that means I won't be able to work then. And I'll just be able to like feel okay about that. And there was something weird about when my mum was very ill, where like I was trying to think about post-work and care and, you know, like non-remunerated forms of labour and wages against wages against or for housework, depending on who you read. And I was like, actually, although there is nothing that I would want less than what happened, there was something about being able to say, I can't do that because I'm caring for somebody. Yeah. And that's, and actually that's quite a powerful thing to be able to do, particularly in an environment where the intimate relationship we have with work now, to use Melissa Gregg's term, it's not a positive intimacy of the craftsperson. It's the intimacy of like, I can never be away from my emails and my entire personhood is wrapped up in work until I find some kind of barrier. Sure. So an allotment, a dog, Whatever I can do, volunteering. <laughs> I want a dog, man. I want a dog. Stop and